Hello, everybody, and welcome back to At the Elephants. I'm your host, Rob Morris. Glad you're listening. Glad you're with us. Uh, this episode is excellent. Uh, I had a wonderful time talking to my friend David Gao, uh, who was on vacation and came uh, out to L.A. and took some time out of his vacation to come to the studio in Silver Lake to sit down with me and to lay down his episode of At the Elephants. And so I want to say thank you, David. I appreciate you taking the time. And you guys are going to appreciate that he took the time, too. David is an awesome dude. He's from Houston. We talk about Texas. We talk about how he used to go to Pepperdine. So he knows L.A. and he knows New York. And and he's a very articulate and kind man with a rich, deep voice. I think you'll enjoy this episode a lot. Um, You are listening to version two take two of this episode anyone who joined uh us over the weekend for the first few days this episode was out caught um a a version of it with some downgraded audio basically only one of the mics was working had some audio issues but i fixed it this episode you know you might hear a little echo come in and out but for the most part it's good i hope you enjoy it um but i do want to take this opportunity to point that out and say if you want to make your own podcast, if you want to make your own video podcast or show that you want to put on YouTube, you want to do your own videos, you make your own content, anything like that, don't let a lack of understanding or familiarity with the equipment or with the software be the barrier for you. I I knew nothing about podcasting or microphones or any of that stuff when I started doing this in 2014, back before people really even knew what podcasts were. I just knew I wanted to do it. And Everything that I've learned, even solving this brand new problem that I just encountered, is all about YouTube and Google and getting on there and educating yourself. It's so easy, and and there's so many resources that there are so many resources. I'm not going back. This is authentic. I'm not, I'm not starting over. There's so many resources out there to uh, help you to educate yourself and make those things if you want to. So uh, don't give up, you know, when you run into that barrier like I did when I first started this show and managing the RSS feed on iTunes. Some of you are like, what? Exactly. Exactly right. You used to have to know a lot more technical shit to get your show on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, and now you don't, and it's easier. Uh, So you're catching the new version, the fixed version, Uh, of my chat with David Gao. I know you're going to enjoy it. Uh, Subscribe, like, rate, all that stuff. That's a moment. It's insane. It's iconic. Well, and you know what's crazy is I think it's a great example of what it's like to know Bob is like anyone could have done that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, All you had to do was ask. Right. Like, like it's not like Bob and I are best friends and he made some exception for he me. He you for something. No, right. not at all. He simply was, I was like, you want to do this? And he was like, uh, okay. And I was like, all right, cool. And then I literally planned to talk to him for like 45 minutes, maybe an hour and goddamn, if I was gonna hit stop, it right. we just kept going, and I was like, "This is great," 
and now I'm doing like 90 minutes on these pretty regularly. Yeah. But back then it was like that was rare. 45 minutes to an hour max. Like I didn't want to waste anybody's time. I didn't yeah. know what I was going to talk about for that long. But um, yeah. I, I, I can't I can't wait to finish the one with him. But also when I'm listening to it, I got jealous of you. I was like, this is a cool, I would like this job of just like asking people questions. It's fun. It'd be cool if Are it you... was a job. Yeah. Um, but you like doing it? Yeah, I love it. Well, and strangely, uh, that's ki- it's kind of what I do for a living now. Um, so I'm a reality TV producer. Right. You're still with Dancing with the Stars? Mm-hmm. And do you interview people like that might be on the show? Oh, okay. No, I interview people that are on the show. Okay, got so, it. So, like, anytime you watch reality TV and they do one of those, like, talking head interviews, whether it's, like, on location at the beach behind them and they're like, well, I didn't really know what Kevin was going right. to say about whatever – that shit also yeah. the ones that are in a studio where it looks like really nice behind them and they're like yeah i was just thinking about blah 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 blah, blah. those are all interviews mm-hmm. they're not just hey here's a script read these lines it's like there's a producer immediately off camera being like so tell me about this talk about this yeah. like prompting that like so you're seeing one side of the interview then they cut the producer out and it looks like the person is just generating all this content on their own and they just say it they're in, being directed like a complete sentence yeah. question yeah yep and you do the questions yeah i want to interview you now that's do fascinating you? yeah well saddle up pony Let's and ride the tables um i'm fine with that uh you know who always said when i first started the show the person who said for years he was like you should let me interview you for one episode and that should be what the episode is who uh i think you should let me interview oh, yeah? you uh, and and see what we come up with uh, and uh, I said yes, but we just never did it. Um, but you guys yeah. should go back to that, or have yeah. I want I want to do that so badly. Uh, to talk to Robert Besseda for any me- period of time is tremendous. Yeah. Um, but yeah, dude. But today I'm talking to you, I'm talking to you about you. How do you feel about that? I'm excited. Yeah, I've done one podcast before, and it was fun. Yeah. So. I'm one for one. You're so resonant. Do I need to get close? I know, yeah, I love it. This is not, we don't do Joe Rogan style. You don't have to swallow the microphone. Okay. Yeah, not necessary. This is like environmental. Um, if you find yourself more than like a foot and a half away, it's probably too far. But this moves. This is fully okay. like, bring so it. So I can do this yeah, guy? Yeah, whatever okay. you want to do. It's all about it. Um, so you just got here from New York. You're yeah. here on vacation? Well, Yes, I'm here from vacation. I flew out of Massachusetts because I was I'm doing a show there. Um, what what is the show that you're doing in Massachusetts? The Waverly Gallery. Is a play. Lon- yeah, by Got Kenneth it. Lonergan, um, which Lucas Hedges just did on Broadway. Fellow pickle, um, it's amazing. I mean, do you? How do you feel doing the like bring it to your town version of the Lucas play? I know, is right? that what it feels like? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Like um, I'm on the tour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, not being paid quite as much as right. he's being paid. Yeah. But what was amazing about it is that the whole thing is autobiographical about Kenneth Lonergan. Mm. Like, my character is him in his 20s. Right. Um, and Lucas knows him super well because he did uh, Manchester by the Sea. Right, and of just course. just out with him. And so before I went off into the show, I hit up Lucas and I was like, let's get lunch and talk about it. And I, he just rambled for two hours about Kenneth and it was incredible those boys are too cool i wish i I was kissing ass just doing this i'm totally not but like peter and lucas are so fucking cool 
Not only they, they don't have to be like that. No, the they things that Peter has done that he doesn't. Not. Oh, Lucas could get all all of us the middle finger. Absolutely, and we'd be like, hey, I get it. He was. He's got to be the only person in his class who knows my name, and I don't know why. Like I met him a few yeah. times, and every time he saw me, he would be like Rob, and I'm like, why do you give a fuck? Yeah, like he knows who you are, your name, and kind of like reveres anyone that's older than him. Right, and it's not special about me. He's that way to everybody, which yeah. I love. Yeah, and then Peter has of gone above and beyond for the school. It's a yeah. joke. He's so generous. He's um, always been that way, but I feel like especially since maybe like 2014, 2015, he mm-hmm. kind of had a rebirth of like, I want to get more involved around the time Lucas was heading there. Yeah, we we got lucky with our timing with him. I exactly. Think. That's kind of what I mean. Yeah. So you met with Lucas. He gave you the full down low he on the... gave me the full down low. Um, and uh, he, I mean, the cast that he worked with in New York was it like Elaine May was the grandmother who just won the Tony for it. Um, Joan Allen was his mom. Like that whole cast was incredible. Oh, Michael Sarah was casually in it. Nice. Um, yeah, Joan Allen's incredible. Michael Sarah's done a lot of Broadway. He's done a lot of Broadway, and they're all Kenneth Lonergan because he did oh, This Is Our Youth. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, did you do This Is Our Youth at school in the uh-uh. high school? Okay. No, I feel like every single person worked on that play but me. Yeah, it's like, like I've never done it. Half of the actors we know uh-huh. were on that show. Yeah. So he did that one, and then he did Lobby Hero, which mm-hmm, is also mm-hmm. Kenneth Lonergan. And has he, the security guard in it, right? That's yeah, like one of the yeah. main characters. Yeah, I know that one. Who is um, um, Captain America? Chris Evans is his name. Yeah, he was in that with Michael Sarah. Um, and then, I love that you like throw out all these Tony winners, and you're like, "What's fucking Captain America's name?" I know, I know <laughs> but I don't care. Yeah, who's actually like, it's nice weirdly... to have. A, it's nice to have a New Yorker on the show. Yes, you're like, exactly. what are your I LA Hollywood multi million dollar? Anyway, this chick won the Tony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I care about. I totally. I, I um, catered. Like the after party for the Oscars out here one year, nice. And Chris Evans was there. It's like the Vanity Fair one, right? And you see him, and you're like, oh, you're like five seven, like mm-hmm. not that they're regular superhero people. looking. Yeah, totally. They're kind of like Robert Downey Jr. is kind of little. Yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't care for sure. You're not a real. Superhero. Isn't it weird that size is a lot of what determines what, like, how much we look up to somebody? You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. Like people like love Joe Rogan and they meet him and they're like, oh, he's like, like five I'm seven. Out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, also if you're a superhero <laughs> and then I see I'm like looking down at you, right? It takes it away a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Um. Yeah, that party's fascinating, though, of seeing, like, oh, you... Oh, I bet. Yeah. And the hierarchy of the the different cliques of, like, the movie stars. Like, who's chilling with who, and who's... Yes. A, you're like, wow, that's an A-list movie star who's, like, kind of getting ousted in that circle. Oh, like... like no Kate, one wants to talk Caitlyn to Caitlyn Jenner was there, and mm-hmm. no one... No one wanted to speak to her. Really? She was there for, like, 20 minutes. She had just come out and supported Trump, oh. and, like, then to walk into that room There's a way to make friends in Hollywood. I know, that's, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, um, but then, like, Jennifer Aniston, like, ran the show. Like, she was mm-hmm. Queen Bee there. Was that your first, like, celebrity-infused in party? That was the first one. I've now done a bunch of them of just catering in New York or whatever, so now I'm, I'm, I don't really care. Um, I, it makes for great stories, though. Like, sure. I served... Um, I'm also a horrible caterer. Like, I'm... I, <laughs> nine times out of ten, I'm the person who just loses a whole plate of champagne and the whole party stops it's rough but so i i do get good stories out of it like i i was serving john legend and chrissy Teigen, and i set their bread basket on fire are you joking no in front of them like the whole lobby there was like smoke up above the ceiling and i had to put it out with my hands like beat it i feel like 
the illusion is that if you make a mistake like that, they just kill they, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just the end of your life. Not a human being. They take you out back and shoot you, and that's it. Um, I somehow kind of get away with it. Like no one's really caught me. Like they saw smoke and they were like, "Why is this bread basket black and singed?" And I just kind of shrugged and played dumb. And did you go back to there. work for this company <laughs> another day? Not after this interview, but yeah, yeah sure, sure. Um, when like if I'm not in a um, doing a job, I'll just like show up and do a job. But I'm really bad. Like eventually right. they'll figure out and I'll be fired. How but much are you still have to cater and stuff like that? And how much are you working? I've done two catering jobs this year, which has been nice that it's not that much. Um, I already know like in the fall, I'll go back and do a few. Um, and it's, 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 it's like the perfect survival job in that you don't have to get someone to cover your shift or, mm-hmm. you know, um, you can leave town whenever you want, but it's hard. Like when you go, like all I've gone like eight months without doing it, and then mm-hmm. I go back, and I just have a horrible attitude about it. Yeah, they back. It's no, hard. absolutely, man. I I'd love <clears throat> to talk about that because I worked at IHOP for my most of my time at school, mm-hmm. and when I left, not in a way of saying like I'm better than anybody. I just said like, now that I borrowed all this money for this degree, and uh, still owe it. And it took away, you know, all this time in my life, not in a way that I don't appreciate, but it's like I spent all this time like burying myself in North Carolina for years so mm-hmm. that I could get better at this thing or whatever. I don't want to work in food service anymore. Like mm-hmm. I just, I don't have the heart for it. Like every time I do it, it makes me want to not do anything else. Like yeah. I get to the end of that shift and it's like, let's work on a script or let's work on it. No, and fuck that. Dying. I want to go yeah. to sleep and wake up and be miserable about the fact that I have to do it again tomorrow. Right. Like it just bums me out. So when I left college i was like i don't want to do this anymore and i've i've done a few random things that uh you know bartending for the night beer and wine like no no big deal um just because it got thrown my way but i would much rather like man i'd rather pa on a set or like do do something like that than than food service and i'm curious like what keeps you from like trying to seek out a survival job as you put it that's like in the industry like is there anything you Uh can do where it's like you're spending your time only because like you get to the end of catering and admittedly you're still you're still a bad caterer (laughs) you know what i mean like could you be getting better at something while you're paying the bills yeah so i kind of in a way, did that my first two years in New York, I worked as a personal trainer at a, at a gym. There you go. That's kind of what I mean. Yeah. And so, like, my office was the gym. So in between clients, I could work out. And that was really good. But then once I started getting more work, especially that would take me out of town, let's say I had 20 clients. If I left for seven weeks to go do a show, by the time I came back, because I would hand them off to other trainers or I would say, right. do this home workout until I get back, I would come back and 60% of them were gone. Right. And so it was hard to sort of keep building back up. Mm-hmm. And then thankfully, I just haven't had to do much of a survival job recently just because I've been working more. And so the catering thing is sort of just a nice quick fix. But you're right. Like if I did go a stretch where I wasn't acting for a while and I needed consistent work, there's like, much better ways where I could find a job that's improving me in some capacity. But is there a thing you could do that's like – somewhere in between you know what i mean mm-hmm. and i i'm not again this is not me like judging your choices i'm i'm just literally like brainstorming with you yeah. here i'm like okay so you can't personal train or like if you got a job on a tv show let's say you were a pa or even a coordinator or something like that in production you'd be locked into that show the idea of going to like 
an audition on a Wednesday morning would be like not possible. Right. Is there anything in between like like catering and bartending and like something that's maybe a little more productive for you as a person yeah. where you could also have that freedom or, or is that why everyone does it because there is nothing else like that? Um, I mean, catering is the easiest, but I'm sure you're right that there's a happy medium. I kind of had a weird happy medium once where I got a job <laughs> working for like, I don't even know what the, I was so bad at this one too. Mm. I have a very limited set of skills I'm learning. Um, but it doesn't keep you from being employed at those places. That's good. Uh, well, this one, uh, <laughs> this one, this came one, to this an first end? time I got fired. Oh, Unofficially, I love it. like sweetly. I it. Yeah. Uh, um, I had, I don't even know what it's called again, because I was horrible at this, but I had a job where it was these lawyers who kind of are middleman, middleman group who will call up people that work at a law firm and be like, hey, there's this opening at another law firm that has this, this, and this, it'll be better for you, are you interested? And then if they take the job, the middlemen get like a cut in some capacity because they helped facilitate They're like headhunters. Yeah. And there's an official title for this, but again, I barely paid attention. So Recruitment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's more accurate <laughs> so i would do it and i would just cold call people like with a list of like you know terms i just googled and pretended i knew what i was talking about right and so i did it for a little bit and that actually it was it taught me skills of like how to just pitch yourself to people on the phone um which has helped like if i'm fundraising for something i'm producing that helps a lot just because for it's sure. such an awkward phone call but it's sort of inevitable and so learning that skill was helpful until i got fired um, but that was nice because I could work at home and just call people. Like I could sit in bed with my computer on my phone and call people and get paid by the hour. So that was a good one. That's not bad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, eventually I emailed them. I was like, Hey, let me know when you want me to come back in. And they're like, Oh, we're rethinking our process. We'll let you know. And I Wait, so what did you them. do? I didn't, I just not, I, I didn't like, you know, break anything or hurt anyone. I just, they were like, I think. I think we're done here. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so you never found out. No, they said we'll we'll let you know when. It's kind of like, like the breakup when you never find out what you did wrong. Oh, I got ghosted. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but like, I hated it that I was okay. I was like, okay, I got like, and it was right after getting like a Christmas bonus. Like somehow I got on the roster for that. So it's like I'm good. I've made some money off. So this. like they give you a present and Christmas goes well, and then all a of a sudden they break up, and, then, and you're like, oh, well, you know, I didn't even really like them. Yeah, I talk myself <laughs> off the ledge. Like well, I was gonna break up with them anyway. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I was, yeah. Yeah, you don't seem at all bitter about it. In Not the slightest. at all. No. Um, well, uh, this is about par for the course. We're like 15 minutes in. Let me ask my first question. Okay. Uh, where are you from? Houston, Texas. You're from Texas too, right? I am. Yeah. I, I was born in Dallas, raised in Austin, so mm-hmm. we have the most important areas covered. We, the, we, those are the big three. Let's forget about El Paso, New Mexico. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we got the main three. And Absolutely. San Antonio is fine to all the San Antonio people, but you mean the suburb of Austin? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know they would hate that because they're, uh, you know, San Antonio's got like pride. They about do themselves. They Josh do. Popa, Mason, all those San Antonio people. Oh yeah, and it's a huge feed into um, NCSA for sure. Oh and they yeah. All know each Especially other. when Besido was running it. Mm-hmm. So many San Antonio people. Absolutely. Noah Reese. Well, there was yeah. a there's a. There's a lady there, I think, who runs a program who would, like, kind of feed people. There's another lady like that in Houston, right? Yeah. Oh, Joanne like, Woodard did yeah, it forever. Yeah, exactly. She is out here now, but there was... Is she really? Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. She's a funny lady. She... She came to our directing to class a number of times, and... Uh, oh, my first... You don't... You're not going to remember this. The first time I ever met you, I was a prospective student, and I got in the directing class 
just like to observe with her. Right. And it was like you, Daniel, Stephen, and Wiley. Yes, and Gerald. Mm-hmm. And they were recapping your third year directing scenes. Oy. And <laughs> Gerald, <laughs> that was great. I, I mean, it was a good class until. Joanne I mean, I don't hijacked remember that it. specific uh, date, but I do remember her coming and bringing in perspectives all the time. And then just so you hijacking the class, and she gave a monologue for like thirty minutes. Oh my God! Tell me the story. Well, so Gerald's so, talking. Tell, tell me from your perspective. So you're in town with her. Yes. Okay. So I was there. I was going to Pepperdine at this point. Word up. Right. Right. Yeah. So I was out here, and it was I, it was my sophomore year at Pepperdine. And again, she had been feeding all these people to North Carolina. So, like, y- your time frame, it was people like Megan, Megan, uh, Megan West slash Stanky, Becky Moyes, Becky, Adelaide yeah. Lummis, uh-huh. um, Charles Osborne. Sure. Um, Jersey. Do you know Jersey? Jersey Kozowski, yeah. yeah. So, there's a bunch of people that I already respected a lot and liked. So, I was at Pepperdine, and, which obviously was a dream because I was in Malibu. Um, Hard to beat. Yeah. Um, Except they're like super conservative and don't let you do anything, but you're kind of bred into that community. Yeah, I was okay with that. At right. the point, that was all I was really used to. Right. So I was like, this is par for the course. But at that point, I had sort of made a switch in my head of like, I'm a full blown acting junkie and I want to be doing this all the time. And you were doing it like as a liberal arts kind liberal of endeavor. Arts, yeah. So yeah. like we'd have like one or two acting classes a week, one of them being like scene shop. And um, not like, enough, not enough. And if you're not <laughs> casting the shows, you're screwed. So, right, right, right. Um, well, I spent two weeks on that campus, as I told you, working on a, a TV production, and all of the rules of the campus extended to us while we were there. And they were, oh, it like was dry campus. Oh, yeah. all of everything. And it was just so serious. Like anything that we shot, we had to make sure it was approved by them. And it was a whole huge, big thing. And I remember being like, God, this is like a lot to go here. And I thought about like, I know someone who went here. I was like, oh, but it was David. Like, he could handle this. Like, here, you're a clean fella. I was, yeah. I at mean, the, at the time. At the t- yeah. Yeah. Sure. I, I, it was, it was like, they were like, there's a curfew for college guys, students. For like guys and girls being in the same room. And I was like, well, of course there is. We're only 19. Like, we need that. <laughs> you know, like, that seemed very appropriate and logical to me. Like, I couldn't have a girl at my house past midnight. So it's appropriate in college. Amazing. Anyway, yeah. And so it was a dry campus, too. I remember one girl went to a party off campus and drank. Mm hmm. And then um, being responsible, she couldn't drive. She called a taxi to take her from the party back to her dorm on campus. Amazing. Right. Responsible. The cab goes on, and campus police sees a cab and knows that's probably someone drunk. Follows the cab. She gets out. They instantly breathalyze her, and she gets suspended. Like, Holy shit, And she was she was 21. She legally drank and didn't drive and still got punished. So, again, the older and more distance I get, I'm like, wow, that was not a normal college atmosphere. It's, but at the time. Yeah, totally. Well, and it's weird how you kind of, like, evolved. Like, you went from one community to the other in a slow, the like. The two extremes. Yeah, well, and a slow, like, evolution in a way. Yeah. Because it was, like, where you went to college, which was not a typical college experience, but it really paralleled your, like, high school upbringing. And you're like, oh, this oh, is totally. like an extension of what I've already been doing. So this is comfortable. It was it was like going to like the sports Christian summer camps that I would go to, but in college. Really, totally. that's what it was. These people were running around high energy tank tops, guitars. That's exactly like, what that feels like on yeah. that campus. Yeah. Um, but like, again, I loved it. And my library was the beach. I mean, it was heaven. Um, but I wasn't getting the training I wanted. So this woman, Joanne, was like, oh, go to North Carolina. Um, and 
I, I was on the fence about it again because I loved Pepperdine. So I decided I'm just going to audition. I didn't, and I also really didn't come from the world of acting at all. So I didn't know like what Unifieds were or what any other good programs were. You're from a football family. Yes. Big yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our project we did together. It mm-hmm. was very fun. Yeah, Rob knows all about my family. Um, I know a little bit. I know yes. a little bit. You saw the Team Gao t-shirts? I did. Yeah. Um, so I didn't I didn't grow up acting very much, and I didn't know the process, really. So when she pitched North Carolina, I thought, okay, I'll, I, I flew to Chicago and did, quote-unquote, unifieds, but I only auditioned for North Carolina. And I Got thought, it. if I get in, I'll go. If not, I'll just stay in Malibu. So then when I got in, I went to visit the school, and this was the day that we met. That we met. So I came with Joanne, and um, I think because I was um, had already done two years at school, they were talking to me about maybe doing the directing program and just transferring in as a junior. Mm-hmm. So that's why I was in your directing class, and <laughs> we're sitting there, and Gerald, I think this is around the time that Ashley had been sitting in on meetings to help Gerald. My entire to... third year, Ashley Jansen sat in with Gerald to help communicate right. with us as students uh, because of his stroke that had happened the previous spring. Mm-hmm. So basically, after he had his stroke, they were like, we don't know if he's going to recover. Do you guys still want to take class with him? We were like, of course, we'll take whatever we can get. Mm-hmm. And part of part of the way it was possible was because Ashley was able in a way that still astounds me uh, to understand him. Mm-hmm. Like he would be struggling to find any word and she would somehow know the entire thought that he was communicating. Yeah. Um, and in a strange way, by the end of the year, with both his recovery and us working with him every day, we were able to do a, a similar version of the same thing. You know, he would start a sentence or an idea, mm-hmm. a couple of words, and then we would start guessing what he meant yeah and then he would point to us when we were right because he wasn't able wow. to say it himself yeah and we just all got really good at it because we knew what the fuck he usually was saying right like was something along these lines and we'd be like is this what you're trying to say and he would go yeah you yeah. know <laughs> he would like, like just point and make a noise and then and ashley was kind of our translator yeah uh she it was miraculous she would hear like two words he was saying and know the full thought he was trying to get across and is that because she had known him for so long or just because Ashley is Ashley and or did they sort of have a shorthand I think I think yes is the answer to all those questions um you know Ashley was his first directing graduate he had not changed the program much in 20 years so the lessons and the ideas in what he was trying to communicate were the same Mm -hmm. and not only were they the same as 20 years ago he'd done them every year and she'd been back for plenty of those so she knew the curriculum but yeah, there's an incredible shorthand between Ashley and Gerald, uh, just in their relationship, not not aided by who Ashley is as a person. Like mm-hmm. she's just able to kind of do that. Plus, they know each other. Plus, it's the same curriculum. Twenty. So all that kind of came together, uh, and made it able for us to have access to this thing that was kind of like locked off. But she had the keys to it, and so she was able to handed off to us in a way it was kind of a cool thing because i mean she was their first directing student uh and we were his last oh that's right right so it was like this cool like you know beginning to end full circle bridge of him trying to pass on his directing program one more time in the state he was in and you got to see part of that yeah and 
and my impression was it, that day is kind of what you just described was he like the note that he was trying to give you was was in his head articulate and he had it, it just he couldn't get the word so Always. he would he would point to someone and be like um he'd say something like oh, you couldn't see blah 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 and they'd be like oh the lighting and he'd be like yes like it was enough that you guys were getting it well, um, and we were always on the edge of our seats trying to guess. Mm -hmm. That was what the class was. Yeah. Like, it was like guess Gerald's lesson. Right. Which was so the opposite of what everyone else had experienced, which was like, just deal with the fucking whatever he says to you. Yeah. And it would just be harsh and hard to hear, and you'd be like, fuck, he's right, and I'm angry about it, because I yeah. wish I would thought of that. Like, I pr particularly the thing, and th who knows, this may have been the note he was giving you, uh, or giving us with you there because it's the main thing I remember, I fought him so hard on the costume that Benton wore in my third year directing project. I was, I had seen I it. I saw at, all of those. Which one was yours? Hopscotch with Ellie Barone and yeah, Benton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I felt great about it, honestly. I, I felt like it was really good uh, on, in a lot of ways. It's a really weird script that's hard to get right. Um, but I saw Molly Maxner direct it when I was brand new to the school, similar in your mm -hmm. capacity. I hadn't really joined the program yet, and I was just like, what is this? And I watched the third-year directing projects, and I was like, holy shit, I love this. Which is funny, because could there be a worse thing than the third-year directing projects on campus? <laughs> like, sometimes there there's some good shit in there. We don't know what the fuck we're doing. It's like, right. they're garbage. Like, we were bad at picking scripts for the occasion. We're bad at, if you're if you're lucky at that point, you're good at casting. And that's, right. And, and that's really the first one that you guys do for yep. an audience right yeah yep we do the a project earlier in the third year that only gerald sees that's our 10 minute but the 20 minutes which i'll end up 30 minutes mm -hmm. uh you know they're garbage uh yeah. and I, I say that with so much love for my cast and my fellow directors they were all bad mm -hmm. but hopscotch i felt pretty good about accomplishing a lot of things in but one thing i was really sure about was when i originally saw it uh, Andrew Jernigan, who was 2010, he was in a fucking suit. And I thought the suit was a mistake. I, I thought it didn't tell the story the way I wanted to tell it. I, it didn't explain the character in the way that I did. And when I was working on it, and Gerald finally saw it, he was like, where's the suit? And I was like, I'm not putting him in a fucking suit. I'm putting him in this other outfit for this reason, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, uh, I'm telling you, he should be in a fucking suit. And I was like... Was that because he it was just used to seeing it like that? Or it was part? it was in the script? In some way. Costume's not in the script. Uh-huh. The characters know each other from their past, but they haven't seen each other in a really long time. And they're playing this game with each other where they're kind of pretending not to know each other. And it's like this tongue-in-cheek, like, oh, hey, what's up? Nice to meet you. But they fucking know who each other are. Mm -hmm. And they have this huge, sordid relationship that goes back a long time, and they haven't seen each other till this moment. You don't really know that until the end of the play that's when you like figure out their whole relationship as they're kind of fucking with each other it's a very confusing mm -hmm. like it's really hard to watch anyone doing a project like that with that kind of assignment should just pick a fucking easy story to tell like a guy comes home there's a problem they talk about it like yeah. that should be the simple kind of story that you're trying to work on the minutiae of but when you're a director and you've been kept off the stage so to speak for a while and you have nothing to and you really want to say something you're trying to find a script that's like interesting or weird or gives shocking you, yeah, yeah something. memorable yeah instead of just picking a boring ass like thornton wilder scene or something mm -hmm. like that's what you should do you should just pick something boring and try to make it good 
that's what you should do but that's not what any of us fucking do and not what we did so i picked this play where you don't even know who the goddamn characters are till the scene is over and anyway back to the costume choice i decided not to put him in a suit which basically establishes this guy has moved on from the shitty neighborhood that he grew up in and he has done something with his life which is true that's in the script the easiest way to show that is to put her in trash clothes and to put him in a fucking suit so that you can see that the guy who went off and made something of himself mm -hmm. is back in the shitty town in his new element. It's the right call to put him in a fucking suit. I was so sure that that was not the right idea. And David, I cannot remember why I was so fucking sure. But I was very sure that the suit thing... I thought it ruined the mystery. That's what it was. Okay. I thought immediately you're like, why is this guy here? Whereas if they look like they're both kind of trashy, you're like, you have to. Okay, yeah. It's a little I harder to it. figure yeah. out what the fuck is going on. Why make it harder to figure out what is going on? Dumb. But Gerald very calmly and in the best way was like, I'm just saying, I think you should put him in the fucking suit. And I was like, I'm just saying, I hear everything you're saying, but I'm going to put him in a fucking suit. I'll do everything else you say, but that doesn't make sense to me. And he was totally right. He yeah. was 100% right. I should have put him in the suit. Or I should have I should have done something different than I did uh, in that regard. But he never fought me on it. It was always like, all right, mm -hmm. if that's what you're going to do. Because he knew that I would get to the end of the play and be like, fuck, he was right. Like, if I was smart. Yeah. And if I didn't, then whatever. That was his attitude on teaching us at the time. It was like, here's the lesson. Do you want it? And it was like, no. Right. And it was like, all right. I don't give a shit. Isn't like, it... I'm 80 years old. Like, you can take the lesson or fucking not. I don't care. Isn't there part of you that, like, <laughs> thinks it would be so much more valuable to do this training now than when we were babies? Yeah. Well, I, I already thought that then, which separated me from a lot of people at school. Uh-huh. Like... I was already like 22. Yeah, I was 21 when exactly. I Exactly. Yeah. And I got so much more out of it then. If I was to do it again now, I'd get so much more out of it totally. now. If I do it in 10 years, I'd get way more out of it then. But one of the things that I felt separated me from other classmates was I had a little bit more perspective not coming immediately from high school, working a full-time job, going to another school first, all the stuff that, you know, set you aside too, that it was like, I just have a different kind of attitude on this. And one of the main things is, and this is what I tell people all the time, I had the willingness to evolve what made me happy and what I wanted. So I didn't start at NCSA like, I'm going to be a Broadway director and hold on to that for four years and then leave school yeah. going, if I'm not a Broadway director, I'm a piece of shit. Yeah. No way. I'm like, I'm here to learn. And I may find out at the end of the four years, I want to be a fucking accountant. Fuck all this. But I didn't decide that. Like, I, But I let myself be open to whatever was going to evolve. And I think if I had come there like right out of high school, been like the fucking shit at my high school, and then come to this place and try to be the shit there, and then be like, now I'm going to go to Broadway and be the shit there. And it's like, I think it's easy to get caught up in that. I don't hold any judgment for people who get caught up in that kind of rat race. But like, I just never felt it. I was more yeah. like, I just want to be better at this. I think, I mean, I feel the exact same way i think it was a huge gift to come to school at least for me not right out of high school right um and mine was kind of similar to you but that it was i already did two years in college i did i mean even though it was the conservative christian college it's still like i was in a fraternity i was out of the house 
doing well, my own decisions. Well, you grew up in like the same house the whole time, right? The whole time. Yeah, yeah, same family. Every brother plays fucking football. Yeah. The same number or some shit, right? Yes, yes. Everyone exactly. was number 10. Oh, it, we went to... So at my high school, my dad, my older brother, and both my two younger brothers all went to the same high school, played quarterback, wore number 10, and then all went off to play college football. The youngest one just graduated in May, and he's going to be the quarterback at University of Chicago. Are they all bigger than you? Mm-hmm. They're all like, like, I'm like 5'10". They're all over six feet. And just like, just, an, they're all Captain America. Like, it's yeah. obnoxious. Um. So yeah, uh, and then they they are all. Whereas they all play you're more football. Captain America from the beginning of the movie before he takes the super serum. Oof, I'm that, fucking that with you. That hurt a lot. But <laughs> no, sure, no. we can go with that. <clears throat> oh, let's wrap this up. Not at um, all, man. Yes, I'm somewhere in between. How about that? <laughs> I'm 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 like when he's halfway through the operation. For for those listening, David is a very handsome and, oh and fit young man. I don't want to give off the wrong impression. He's a personal trainer. This guy. What if I was a personal trainer and did look like Captain America? You're still like 90 yeah. pounds. <laughs> I can't pick up any of the weights or spot anyone. You'd be like, strange, after I would leave town, none of my clients were there. <laughs> Absolutely They never wanted to come back. It was such a mystery. Um, anyway, so it was a huge gift that um, because I did two years of college before, when I came to North Carolina, first of all, I was leaving like paradise to go to Winston-Salem. And so I, I was going there purely just to work. I wasn't not in like an antisocial way of like, I'm not here to make friends. But like I was there of like, I'm choosing to come here just to, to work. Yeah. Which, it's like people who give up schools in New York City. You're just like, I don't, I could go there. But part of why I'm choosing North Carolina is it's out in the middle of fucking nowhere where I can focus. Which I love. Yeah, it would be the weekend. What do I do? There's nothing to do. I guess I'll just go to a studio and work on something. Exactly. It was a, a huge gift. Um, and I still, in many ways, at 21, I mean, they say, like, your frontal lobe of your brain doesn't even fully develop till you're 25. So it's still, we're babies. But I'm, I'm, I'm I think it was, I, I don't know how some of my friends, like, I, Emma Gear and Savannah Lee, in my class when just they started the program at 17 which is i unfathomable to me yeah nuri in our class was He's like 17 yeah yeah it's crazy uh-huh so yeah I, I i'm very glad it worked out the way that it did for me that i was 21 when i started so what did joanne do in my class oh right okay <clears throat> so we're we're there for like 25 minutes he's giving you guys notes and this is like i think the last class of the whole year yeah. And it's sort of like your final feedback on your your babies that you just presented to the school your first time. And he's he's gotten through about two or three of you guys and you're I'm watching you guys kind of play the guessing game with him and it's fascinating. And I'm sitting in the corner like very uncomfortable. Um and she just sort of says like, "Let me stop you right there." Oh, and God. takes the reins and she goes on a 35-minute speech about how wonderful Gerald is and how you guys don't appreciate him enough. Really? Which was for no reason other than just to hear herself talk. Like, you guys weren't being disrespectful. She just I wanted know. to be like, yeah. So she just wanted to, like, lay in that she knew who Gerald was. Um, and and she talked until, like, the class was over. Wow. And she kept on, like, pointing to me, like, he's like he's one of mine, so he knows how to act. And I'm like, You're trying to bury your head in your shoulders. It was the, and this was, like, a, one of the tiny rooms. There was only, like, six of us in there conference room it's got like 45 chairs in it that you're all like smashed in there yeah, together. It was, yeah it was horrible for sure and then i think the next year she sort of 
went off in a Greg Janine singing class, and after that she was banned from being in there. So that was the beginning of the end for Joanna in North Carolina. I hope she's not listening to this. I mean, I'm incredibly grateful to her for where she she introduced me to the school, but that yeah. day was really uncomfortable. Yeah, well, you know, in the same way that I can recognize that I should have put that guy in the fucking suit, uh-huh. maybe by chance if she's listening, she recognizes Hi, how that went over right. and how it was received. Because that's another thing, too, that I um, – man, if, if I learned anything from school, and I don't even know how – this happened and and some of it happened after but like just the ability to look back on something and go like man i got that wrong Mm -hmm. like i really was sure i was right in the moment and i think i think maybe only in the past like three or four years have i really been able to do that with myself where i've been able to go like you know what dude that thing when you were super fucking sure yeah you were you were the opposite of right Mm -hmm. not just like you were penultimate like off by a degree you're objectively incorrect absolutely there's no debate like there's no having a conversation about like well if you'd have been there and if you'd have seen that nope you're wrong you're totally wrong you never should have done that that was a fucking mistake yeah i don't think i had the capacity to do that when i was 24 like i just don't think i could i think i could go oh well but you know and i would make excuses for myself and admit that i'd made a mistake but not fully Right. And and something and I think some of that was school. I think it's it's that we were younger and also you don't stop at school. So there's hardly ever a time to pause and reflect on what just happened because mm. you're just going, going, mm-hmm. going next project that. Yeah, I definitely getting distance from school. Will look back and I have the same kind of epiphanies that you do. So what's the relationship like now with uh, with your family? We we did a, we alluded to it earlier. Uh, we don't have to go into great detail necessarily, but you and I did a project together for Intensive mm-hmm. Arts, uh, where we kind of dove into your relationship with your family mm-hmm. and your brothers and your dad. Um, I'm I was thinking about it earlier today. I was like, man, how much of that do I remember? Like specifically, all all of them. I'm like. Uh, I mean, I remember Chess's better, but I remember oh, yeah. yours and uh, Ricky and Patrick's a little bit less. And I was trying to think of the details of it earlier today because I was like, that's like maybe one of the things I know the most about you. Yeah. Because um, we didn't really know each other very well before we did that. Yeah, I think that was my fr- – yeah, that must have been my, really my first – because you kind of hit me – you approached me to do that project, and I was really flattered and excited to do it. I approached all people I didn't know super well, uh-huh. that I knew kind of well. Right. That was the idea. So it was kind of blank slate. Mm-hmm. We don't know what we're going to share. But I and, still knew enough to know that you'd be good to work with, that kind of thing. And this this was something that someone else, you had taken the concept from, like, that had been going on before I was yeah. there, right? Yeah, basically. Um, my friend Brandon Harris uh, sort of developed it based on a few different things. Uh, and there, I'd seen different iterations of it, but uh, we did borrow the title uh no we didn't borrow the title i changed the fucking title arbitrarily because i was like it's not it's not technically the original so it should be called something else but uh yeah it was based on a piece called raw 
And so yeah. the idea was that we would take um, just like a fundamental story about you and just try to tear it open and find out what it meant and try to be really, really honest with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe for the sake of it, you tell me what you remember about yeah. it. And we'll go from there. Great. So I remember meeting with you, and that's a good way to put it, of tearing it apart. Of We just, I remember we did a lot of writing and a lot of just sort of vulnerably brainstorming about different chapters of our life that we really haven't explored either because they were felt ugly or uncomfortable. Um, And I remember when we started it, I was like, oh, I know what this is going to, I'm going to share. I know what my story is going to be. And I wrote out a whole thing about it. And I think there was like one sentence in there about my brothers and my family. And you kind of highlighted, no, this is actually the story you want to tell. What was the original story? The other one, which actually was really fascinating too, was I had, so I grew up in a very sports Christian family. And I went to this um, Christian sports camp called Canacuck where there was this, um, he was a camp counselor, but basically ran the whole thing. And he was just a God. I mean, every kid desperately wanted to hang out with him. Vaguely remember this now. Yeah. Um, and he was, he was all of our heroes and like a huge Christian influence in all of our lives. And then, so we would see him in the summer and then he would do these tours where he'd go to different cities and do speaking engagements about God. And he would always come and stay with our family like twice a year. And it was the highlight of the year. It was so fun to have him. Um, and he was very affectionate and like physically touching, like hugging and stuff. And we never thought anything weird about it. Long story short, he's now in prison for life for pedophilia. Right. Um, and it was such a weird thing to rationalize, like, um, how someone who I truly thought was perfect, like in yeah. every way I wanted to be him, could be also a monster. And someone who was, I would go to for moral guidance of like, is this appropriate? What about this? Does God want me to do this? Was then using abusing his privilege of power on kids and so it just sort of threw everything that i've been taught and knew up in the air Mm -hmm. um but i remember putting so i mean what must i have seen in what you wrote to not have you tell that story because i know exactly what it was i wrote that i was the first person to go to this camp and i met pete and he was my hero and I introduced my whole family to Pete in the camp. And I was like, look at this guy. He's incredible. And so because of that, my younger brother went to camp. And when Pete met him, just dropped me. Like, had no interest in me. Now I remember. remember this? Yeah. Yep. And, like, was obsessed with my brother. And they talked on the phone every week. And, and it, like, Yeah, we, and it was like, what the fuck? He's my guy. He was my guy. And it also was just sort of a reflection of how I felt as a kid in my house. Like, everyone liked my brothers better than me. And mm-hmm. I was like, this was, like my one thing like he was my guy and he was my favorite and like of course even he likes my younger brother better than me and so and i don't even i didn't even go into it that much i just put that little tagline and you kind of put a spotlight on like that what why is that and then we flushed out everything about my family and so we found so much more yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. and so the final piece i did talk about pete this counselor a little bit but it was in under the umbrella of like what hurt me Oh, I know what it was. Is because my big takeaway from when Pete got busted and was going to prison, the thing that upset me the most wasn't that he was going to prison. It was that my fam- my parents went and checked on my younger brother and not to make you. sure nothing had happened and not me. 
because and somehow, they were so much closer. Yeah. So we have no worry about anything happening between you and David. Totally. And somehow that actually upset me more of like. I mean, what do you mean somehow? That makes total well, sense. Yeah. I mean. That, it seems like, strange that you would be perturbed having not, you know, it's like, I want you to worry about me. Not yeah. really. But what's underneath that worry is a recognition of the fact that the relationship is there and important. Mm -hmm. So like. They recognized the validity of the relationship between Pete and your brother more than they recognized it between you. Yeah. And it's like, there would be no fucking Pete in the Gao household if it weren't for David. Yeah. Period. Like, so why are you focused on him? Exactly. Right. Yeah. And and just to be clear, thankfully, nothing happened with my brother or I. Right. Um, but so, yeah, that was my big takeaway is like, no one's going to ask if I had an encounter with this guy. Um, and so then you pinpointed that. And so then that sort of flushed out the rest of the story of what it was like, again, sort of growing up in a Friday Night Lights environment where my brother and my dad, there was, we just had this football dynasty that like I sort of half-heartedly tried to be a part of, but it just wasn't for me. And I knew like I actually wanted to be a part of the arts, but that just wasn't what we did. Um, and so we did it. It was in, for intensive arts. I did this whole thing. And I remember my parents were there and I, they didn't know some of the details about this. And I definitely had never shared this with them. Um, and it wasn't like the piece was giving them the middle finger. Like I have incredible parents. I've the most enviable family. Like I love my relationship with all of them, but it was a very, um, hard shit to hear. Yeah. And no, it wasn't sugarcoated in any way. Right. And so I said to them beforehand, like, just so you know, like I'm in this piece, it's, it's going to be a lot. And, I can't wait to have a conversation with you guys about it after. And so we went to Jeffrey Adams, Winston-Salem restaurant after, and we just talked it out for like three hours and it was incredible. And they weren't mad at me and it, it, it did a lot of healing. It did a lot of healing that we didn't know that we needed to heal because we all thought that we were great. Partly because, and, and you might have this in Texas too, like you don't really talk about ugly stuff and you're always smiling and act happy. You're always polite. So we just didn't, know that we needed to have that conversation but we did and it was great um so i'm very grateful that i did that project with you because we're all just more honest with each other now and yeah it was a great experience it was oh. hard it was uncomfortable but right. in a good way i think if i remember correctly uh ricky went home and had a similar experience i don't i don't think his family was at his uh piece Mm -hmm. But I think he went home and, and had a conversation with his family about it. And, um, you know, I, that's not why I did it. I didn't do it to try to heal anyone's family or fix anything. I'm not qualified to do that. Um, but I think that the thing that attracted me to doing the piece in the first place and the thing that made me fall in love with the idea, but you know, years before when I saw it, was just like, I'm so and people who've known me for a really long time will find this ironic. I'm so obsessed with honesty. Mm -hmm. um, and that does not mean that I'm always honest or that I always have been. Uh, in fact, there's been times in my life when I was uh, incredibly not honest for like long periods because I didn't give a fuck. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of like the kid who's a bully, which I wasn't, I was on the other end of that, but a kid who's a bully who then grows up to be very compassionate because they're like, wow, I was a piece of shit. Uh -huh. You know, like I, I can't believe I was so bad to other people. I want to be good to other people. Like I was that in the world of honesty. Like I was just a liar for a really long time. 
And then I finally was like, I'm going to lose all the people I care about if I keep fucking lying all the time. Like, I'm never going to be able to build anything real. Uh, and that kind of washed over me uh, in a series of experiences. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do that piece was to shine the light on somebody else. Like, I was having trouble being honest with myself, and I found it much easier to help other people be honest with themselves. Uh, and also, I just always have kind of had an ability to, I guess, especially as you retell me the, the version of us working on it, like, I've got some sort of vision for what the truth is. Like, you tried to tell me a, sell me a bill of goods, mm -hmm. and I was like, yeah, but I think there's a more specific thing in here. And who knows why my brain worked that way. Like, mm -hmm. I could have just as easily been like, wow, there's a lot in this thing that you're bringing. Let's focus on that. But for whatever reason, I was like, no, nah, I think there's something more significant at, at the root of this. And I could – now that you tell me the story, I almost remember it perfectly. I'm like, uh -huh. no, no, no. I remember reading this and going, bah, 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 bah. no, this is it. Yeah. This is the fucking thing. I don't know what it is because we got to crack it open and find out what's in there. But I know that th this is why you're upset. Mm -hmm. Not just that you found out that this dude did X, Y, Z. That is upsetting. But why is that really upsetting? Well, and, and then it actually is telling my story, not his story. Then I'm not just saying, like, this guy did this. Isn't that horrible? It's, like, coming from my perspective on it, yeah. which is so much more interesting. And, and because at the end of the day, we're all selfish in that way. Like, we're all going to be like, oh, my God, this crazy thing happened. Or these people, they're, these kids locked in cages, whatever. As horrific as all those things are and all the empathy you can feel for those, there is something selfish at core at the core of that because you're going like, how would I feel? You know, that's what empathy is, is it's not just sympathy for someone else or a recognition of something being fucked up or whatever. At the end of the day, the only reason you really feel anything in response to it is because it's affecting you. It's hitting whatever you care about, whatever mm -hmm. means something to you. You're either imagining yourself in those circumstances or you're imagining someone that you love in those circumstances. It's hard to just fundamentally care about people you don't know and things you aren't experiencing. Like to really feel that, mm -hmm. it's actually pretty difficult, even if you're a very sweet, kind person. Yeah. But what's not hard is to imagine someone that you care about in that situation or yourself in it and go, Whoa, 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 whoa. Game changer. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about after graduation because okay. uh, I don't know anything. Okay. <laughs> I don't know anything about what happened to you. Okay. Uh, were you a junior when we did that project? You were a third year or a fourth year? Uh, third year. Okay. Because so, you were still in North Carolina Yeah, yeah, at that teaching. Point. Yeah. Uh, so you, what year did you graduate then? 2016. So I've been out for three years. Got you. You yeah. go straight to New York? Straight to New York, yeah. How's that going? So I sort of assumed I was going to come back out here because I had lived here for two years and I knew it. Um, but uh, off of like the responses I got in Showcase, I sort of had the most exciting option to go to New York. Which was what? 
uh, Abrams, Richard Fisher, who's sort of a friend of the school and comes down. Um, uh, so I signed with him at a showcase and that kind of decided that I was going to go to New York and I'm obsessed with it. I love it. I mean, I, I love coming to California. Um, but, um, I love the hustle and busyness of New York. I mean, mm. I, LA is much more comfortable and pretty and, um, but I love New York. It's yeah. funny that you say that in such a like, meh, meh. It's much more comfortable and pretty. Like those aren't I know. hugely awesome things about. I know. <laughs> Which my family's like, what? But because I, I'm, I'm a psycho workaholic that I'm happier working and stuff than like being at the beach. Not that that's all that California is, but I comfort is my comfort level is not a high thing for me. Like I don't really care where I'm staying or living or, um how much space you have yeah like my i had a great apartment in winston-salem that i just like did like i could live with like blank white walls no furniture i just don't care about any of that kind of stuff like the comfort level right. stuff you're not a nester no which i know yeah that's a good way to put it which it, i know is so important to people people's happiness and creativity and all of that it just doesn't matter to me which is why i can live in a hole in new york and For i'm sure. fine yeah. Yeah, and you can see that I'm the exact opposite of uh -huh. that. Like, if you just walk around this apartment, you're like, Rob's apartment is really nice, by the way. It's not about niceness. It's just it's clear that someone lives here. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's clear that people are in this place all the time and functioning and also keeping it clean. Like, I um, I've never had a New York apartment. I've had several, and I've never had one that even compared to living out here uh, mm -hmm. for a bunch of reasons. Like, well, I don't go on and on about why I don't live in New York City, but uh, there, there are other episodes of this show that cover that. Um, but the thing for me that, that, that you just pointed out is so key is, like, I'm exactly that. Like, I need a comfortable space. I want to decorate my apartment. I like to build things in my apartment. Mm -hmm. Like, I've got my my studio i've got my my weed tent i've got and it's like and i got room for more shit if i decide to do more shit here whereas it's like when i was living in new york i was always always out of space yeah. always out of room and i'm like oh i want to do this or that and i'm like where would i put it where would i do it like yeah it's like oh we got to go do it out in the park if you want to do something like that and i'm like ah, no fuck that yeah i want to do it in my apartment I'm the opposite. If you see my apartment, you'd be like, oh, so you just moved in this week? And I'm like, no, I've been here a year. Right. Like, I still have, like, a box that isn't fully unpacked, and you my walls there. are blank. I, I, I sleep there, yeah. Um, but that doesn't affect me. Like, right. all my siblings are like, I don't know where I'm going to live, but I have to live somewhere where there's natural beauty. And I like natural beauty, but I, don't, I would never pick somewhere to live based off of that. Like, I just don't have that in my brain. Like, I don't care. Um, Do you think you'll always be like that? Hard to guess, but you've evolved quite a bit in the last 10 years of your life. Yeah. Do you think in 10 change. years you're yeah. going to be like, I'm so sick of everything that about New York that I, I used I'm to love? I'm sick of walking by trash on the street in dirty subways. Maybe. I made a huge leap uh, from, from that. When I was in high school, uh, and I lived in New York when I was a junior in high school, mm -hmm. dude, I exactly the way you're describing. 
Exactly. I was like, I'll give a oh, fuck. So maybe I'll change then. Yeah. It's it's possible only because I say like I had almost the exact same change that you're describing. Like I I lived in there in high school and people be like, it's so dirty, it's so dirty, it's so too small, blah blah blah. Like I don't give a fuck about any of that. I'm in New York City, dude. Yeah. I'm fucking going to this. I'm going to that. It's amazing. You can't do this anywhere else. And then I left. I came back for the year after I graduated college. So this was like. 2005 to 2013 man i couldn't be more the opposite all of a sudden i'm like and you know what it wasn't just the dirt or the trash because i live in la i still see plenty of dirt and trash and like our homeless problem is off the charts Mm -hmm. like this is not a clean city to live in however the apathy that's in new york the amount of watching everybody walk by the problem for mm-hmm. some reason, is worse than driving by the problem, I guess. Right. But, like, the story that I always tell, and I don't know if I've done it already on this podcast, so I'll tell the very short version, which is I was I was in the subway. Uh, I want to say it was, like, the C train station at, like, uh, 48th or whatever the one is just above 42nd. That's, like, that one it's 50th, blue line. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is 50th. And it's, like you're like three stories down yeah it's really deep so on in like august it's like 120 degrees down there it's so uncomfortable i'm there i'm sweating but i'm like whatever the train's taking forever but i'm like cool there's no one around which to me is always the thing that makes me feel a little better in new york even if i'm miserable if there's no one around me i'm on like an empty platform um, i got a little room to breathe so i'm like i'm okay this dude walks you know, and I'm all the way down on the end of the platform from the stairs so that I can get off in the front of the train where my station is. So I've walked all the way to the end is the point. This other guy comes down the stairs. He walks almost all the way to the end too, but he's like two cars away from me uh, in distance. He's eating a banana. This guy wearing a suit. Mm-hmm. So this is not a homeless guy. This is a fairly, you know, he's got a fucking suit and it's not dirty. So he's eating a fucking banana. He's 10 feet away from a fucking trash can. Uh He finishes banana. He takes the banana peel. He doesn't throw it down on the tracks, which would be weird and dumb. He doesn't do the smart thing and just walk 10 feet and throw it away in the fucking trash. He throws it on the subway platform on the ground. And then, like, with his foot, kind of smashes it into the pole, like the the beam that's there, as if it's some rug he's going to get it underneath or something. And I was like... That's a cigarette butt to you. Yeah. And I would, for some reason, wouldn't mind if it was a cigarette butt, which is not organic. But for whatever reason, the fact that he threw this thing down, because to him, the whole city is his trash can. I was like, I can't, I can't do this. That was like, that was an epiphany for you. It was one of the last straws. Yeah. I actually had my last straw on a Chinatown bus coming back from North Carolina because I was seeing Becca and I was like, I don't want to do this trip anymore why am i spending all my time working so i can get money to take a chinatown bus overnight like this is backwards however there were a bunch of in the city moments that i was like i don't fit here i don't feel like i belong with these people i feel like everyone here this guy man this guy could be the head writer for fucking seth myers or something you know what i mean he's like he's a seems like a fine guy Mm -hmm. he's got a good job probably but he's let the city get to him in this way that he has so much apathy and he sees it as such an unsolvable problem to try to live in a decent place 
that it's all his trash can. Yeah. It's the YouTube comment section of America. It's just like we can be the shittiest versions of ourselves on the streets of New York. And I think some people really like that part of it. And I don't want to live with those people mm-hmm. like because they've found a place where they man, I don't and, and I don't experience a lot because I'm a guy, but I don't hear any stories about catcalling in the extreme that it happens in New York City. Like even in L.A. I don't hear about oh, it. mostly didn't... because people are in their fucking cars. Right. But like but it's because there's a culture in New York of anything you say or do on the street is just ephemeral. It just disappears. Yeah. It's like it didn't happen. You have this freedom to just be anonymous because you'll never see those people again. There's 8 million people here, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. It's just so pervasive. And at the same way, I see the good things happen too, where all of a sudden it's like someone falls and three strangers come and try to help. And it's like that's part of New York also. But that's so much harder for me to see. I, also I think see that's the banana rarer. guy. Yeah. It is rarer. Yeah. More often there's the like, oh, what did someone fall? Get out of the way. I'm late for the train. And it's like, ah, uh, it gets to me, man. It yeah. affects me. And it didn't used to. When I was in high school, that stuff rolled off my back. So I was focusing on me, man. I was yeah. doing me. On to my next thing. Oh, whoop, someone fell. Whatever. Got to go. And it's like now, and I don't know if it's going to school, but I'm like hyper aware. I'm looking at everything. I'm seeing imagery and symbolism and shit that I, you know, isn't even really there. But I'm putting it on that. And part of it is like. I see that one guy throw the banana and I extrapolate that to every piece of shit I know who lives in New York who would do exactly the same thing. Yeah. And some of them I'd probably call my friends. But they let the fucking city get to them and convince them that it's like you can be a piece of shit as long as someone sees you. Yeah. And it's like it's dangerous, Our man. brains work so differently because I will be the person that walks down the street in New York and someone will be like, did you not see that that building two feet away from you was on fire and exploding? I'll be like, what building? Right. I just don't pick right. up on it. And actually the biggest tell... I think you gotta do that to live there, man. Maybe. And it's not even like a conscious thing like, oh, t- tune it out. I just, I don't know. I'm not like a super observant person, which is weird for acting, but I, I just am not. And I think the biggest tell that I was gonna like New York better than LA is that I openly moved from Malibu to Winston-Salem. Like that right there. I'm like, I'm choosing to go to, (laughs) I don't want to talk badly about lovely Winston-Salem, but it's not Malibu, but it's where I could do the work that I wanted to do. Right. And that's sort of how I think about New York and LA. Like, yes, it's prettier and it's lovely out here and everyone's super healthy, which I love. Um, but I love the grind of New York. Sure. Um, my money is on at some point and uh it'll switch for me you think yeah okay i really do i think there will i think there will come some point in your life and this is not as someone older is trying to be patronizing i just i i i think to a degree it might be unavoidable for some people and i just get the sense i think you and i have uh similar backgrounds and where we're from and stuff like that i think there's a fair chance that maybe 30 35 something clicks where you do start seeing that on fire building yeah and you're like holy shit this is all on fire (laughs) okay yeah so (laughs) this whole city's a dumpster fire um let's do an interview in three years and sure and we'll we'll see but like because there's a weird part of my brain like i remember one day i left for for I had two auditions in one day. I was fully, like, dressed up on my audition stuff. And in my backpack, I had literal weights, like workout weights, because I was going to train somebody and a jump rope and tap shoes, because I was filming a tap thing with Samaria uh, Nixon Fleming. 
and my and I remember like for two days my back was messed up because I was carrying this around and every time I felt my back hurt I got fired up because I was like yes like I'm doing the grind I love the work which is crazy but like yeah there's a weird part of the misery of New York that I've now equated to being like productive and working hard that I actually am attracted to it no I totally get it that's not insane man I mean that's the same as like enjoying the burn of a workout that's the best way to compare it yeah you're like you're like I feel it it hurts but that hurt means I'm growing. That hurt means I'm getting better. And I guess, like, as long as you feel that way, you should fucking do it. Because... And that might not be sustainable. You might be right that eventually I'm like, I want something that's a lot more comfortable than this. My best friend Brandon, class of 2010, man, he, uh, he's he been there since 2010. And he's exactly the way you describe yourself. Mm-hmm. And he and I could not be more different. We're from exactly the same neighborhood. We're almost the same age. We've had... You know, went to the same high school, went to the same college. But, man, it suits him. And he tried to come out here, and he was like, no. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'll just chill. Yeah. And-, and it's like, dude, if I can't chill, and if I feel like – here's the way that I put it. When I'm walking on the streets of New York for most of the year, it's either too cold or too hot for me, which is fine. You shouldn't have to be. You you shouldn't get to be in your ideal climate all the time. That's mm-hmm. a little first world. However, when I'm in LA and it gets hot, it doesn't get too cold. But when it gets too hot, I feel like I have refuse. You can escape it for sure. It's so easy to get away. You can duck into any place. It's gonna have blasting air conditioning, making it sixty degrees in there. There's gonna be public bathrooms most places you go, and those two things alone make New York a very hard place for me to be. Like, I'm the kind of person where it's just like, yeah, I I, I, I don't want to have to plan my bathroom trips as much as I have to mm-hmm. in New York. I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to be traveling yeah. for two and a half hours and getting to this place and then going to that place and then this place, and none of them have public bathrooms, so I better go now. Now, I need to live in a world where I'm like, I have to go to the bathroom right now. Oh, I can. There's one right there. Yeah. Like, that's literally how much I want to think about it. And you can't function that way in New York. It's 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 too difficult. And then the other thing is me being like, my, like, crotch is just a rainforest right now. I'm miserable from the heat, from the heat and uh-huh. the humidity. If I don't, if I can't get out of this and just cool off for, like, 30 seconds, I'm going to freak out. But I'm 45 minutes away from home. It's like, yeah, and if and if you can deal with that, dude, fucking do it. Like they say all the time, and I used to make fun of this. It'd be like, oh, it takes a certain kind of person to live in New York. And I, my joke used to be like, yeah, a miserable person. Mm-hmm. But in all truthfulness, it does take a certain kind to live there in the same way that only certain people can be fucking soldiers. Like, yeah, like it's not for everyone. Not everyone should sign up for the fucking army. But no. if you can sign up for the fucking army and you think you'd manage that okay, go fucking do it. Because, like, the reward for putting yourself through that struggle can be monstrous. Yeah. I think the scary thing is just the idea of spending, like, 10 or 15 years in New York suffering through the grind and getting through it and then not being happy with where you are at the end of that and being like, oh, God, I just, like, sweated in this tiny box for 15 years and I... I don't like where I'm at. Yeah. But I think that's more about expectations and, and deciding where you want to be. Yeah. But then also, I mean, the fear, uh, that expectation fear, I think, could be anywhere. And I would rather feel like I was hustling and grinding and being whittled down while trying to get there than, like, 
where I feel like I might become relaxed and complacent in LA. What's what's worse, being whittled down or being complacent? See, that's why I think complacent I'm, guy sounds happy. See, that's why I'm a little weird because I would do the whittled down one. But I like that. I I I hate having an empty calendar. Mm. I hate not having like a schedule of things to do. Even if it's like I would rather know like I need to go pick up a, a, a prescription and go to the drugstore than have a free afternoon because I feel like at least I'm doing something and I have. A task to accomplish. What do you worry is going to happen if you don't have a task? Um, it's like not, what happens to you in those free afternoons? I I make myself busy in some way, and it's not a fear of like something bad's going to happen. I just don't. I I will literally have a hard time falling asleep if I feel like I haven't done something in the day. Why? I I'm like addictive. I'm addicted to the idea of being productive, even if it's not actually being productive, just mm. the idea of like, I did even something if it's an important illusion. today. Uh, yeah. Like picking up a prescription. That's not really, that's just running an errand. But I was like, yes, okay. I did some stuff today. What, what is the aversion towards doing nothing? Like what if, what if you got to the end of a whole day mm -hmm. and like your roommate or somebody came back and they're like, Hey, what's up, dude? How, what'd you do today? And you didn't have anything to say. That feels like my worst nightmare. Why? But I don't know. I think like why is it such a crime not to accomplish anything? Because I so, somehow that gives me um, value of myself for the day. That's how mm. I feel good about myself. Is if I so been you doing don't have stuff. any worth if you don't accomplish anything. I mean, that's an extreme way to put it. But yeah, I, I get value and worth for myself if I'm doing something that I think is good for myself or my career or just productive in some way. And I don't think it's, don't get me wrong, I'm only kind of playing devil's advocate because I'm curious. I don't think it's a bad thing to be ambitious or hardworking. Um, I think it's I, good and bad. It can be a double-edged sword. I have, uh, I ask because I'm the opposite. Mm -hmm. So I went to NCSA. I did the fucking curriculum. I work in production now. I do 15-hour days. Uh, I'm not a lazy person. Uh, I think it would be hard pressed for someone to make an argument that I'm not hardworking. Mm -hmm. However, I'm not driven to be hardworking. I make myself be hardworking. Mm -hmm. I love the feeling of being productive. I love feeling like I did shit. I mean, I'm, I've always got projects and stuff, man. I, I, I'm similar. Yeah. But my lean, my impulse, my gravity is towards doing fucking nothing mm -hmm. like if if all of a sudden i had all the money in the world and no one was really calling me to do a project or anything like that i'd be working like 15 hours a week mm -hmm. like i'd be finding about 15 20 hours a week to do stuff that i think is really important and projects i do a little podcast that do this takes 90 minutes mm -hmm. editing it takes 30 boom that's two hours you know but I got TV I want to watch. I got video games I want to play. I got books I want to read. I got shit on the internet I want to look at. Like, And I could do that for 70 hours of my week and never get to the end and be like, oh, man, I didn't do anything. Yeah. It just doesn't hit me like that. The only thing that does happen to me is I am not an inherently healthy person. I don't really feel the impetus to like work out or even eat right. So if I had all the resources in the world, I'd have to fight that. That would be my big thing. I'd be like, I need to walk to go get my coffee today because if I don't, I don't have a reason to get up on my feet. Mm -hmm. And so I have to motivate those things. But I lean towards like, 
all right, Rob, you got to get up and do something today. Don't do nothing. Like if I'm unemployed for like this whole week, for example, I just wrapped a show where I was doing 15 hour days starting at 3 p.m., ending at 5 a.m., like two weeks in a row, six days a week, overnight shoots, you know, working with uh, cops and canines, like not low stakes, <laughs> low stress work. Uh-uh. I'm literally trying to direct non-talent talent at two in the morning. I'm not someone who leans on easy tasks. However, this week, this is about all I'm doing Yeah, is this talk with you. This is the most stress that I want this whole week. I'm probably going to go to the beach later today just because it's like I need the whole week to do fucking nothing yeah. to recoup from the last two weeks of losing my mind. Which that – what you just described sounds like the healthy balance. Maybe. I, I mean, it's all you, go and then no, you know. But then you get both. Sure. I, I should learn to do what you're doing this week better. And I have definitely hit a wall a few times where I have burned myself out. And I've had friends do, like, non-serious interventions with me. Yeah. Of, like, you have you to, to stop. Yeah. So I've definitely hit the wall. And so I should learn how to do management like that better but I, yeah it's not in my dna no i love it man i'm deeply impressed with with people like you and like i continue to like it to my friend brandon because it feels the same way it's like i'm so impressed with his energy like he accomplishes five tasks and he's like you want to do something else i'm like yeah. bro relax right. like i want to bring him down to my level just so that we can keep chilling because i'm not coming up to his fucking level yeah but like i'm i'm so impressed i mean you i honestly think it's like the world turns on guys like you and girls like you like it it it's the people who are like just can't stop working mm -hmm. it's like that's the reason the world turns i'm the reason that fucking socialism doesn't work <laughs> Is because it's like I'm the reason that like we can't give everybody shit it's for free. It's a giant just Bernie Sanders poster on his wall. Here. I know, but it's but I but I'm very aware of the fact that like the truth is most people are like you. I really think so. I think the illusion is that most people are like me and they're just looking to chill. Actually, the the worst conception is that most people are like my sister and they never want to work ever. The idea I think is more likely that a blend between you and I is what most people are like. Nobody wants to do nothing. It makes people fucking depressed. Like, right. like people don't inherit. Give everybody a billion dollars and see how long they do nothing. It won't last. Like, they'll do it for a month. They'll float in the pool and smoke the weed and, and listen to the radio. And then they're going to be like, and now I'm bored. Yeah. Like, I got to fucking. And that's most people. But I think the world hinges a little more on people like you who are like, I must not stop. Right. Well, and part of it also, like, when I was in middle school or high school I was kind of like that depending like I was when I was playing basketball I was super into that but for the most part I wasn't like this till a gong went off of oh my gosh I'm obsessed with acting and this business and I love it and so I'm I I am that way for this field I'm not you know I don't think I I, I at five was like running around like I'm taking over the city but like you found something that lit the fire yeah um that I'm obsessed with and i i'm again like i feel like a junkie where i can't get enough of it what if someone told you you had to quit tomorrow and you had to do something else so many people have pitched that question to me i hate it um and my answer i mean i would try to do like directing or something like something else no in the stop field. i know quit could Give i be something else could i be like a talent manager i think i'd be really good at that or or, or, or um what is it called like accountability coach something like that that sounds like you made that up accountability coach no like that's a malibu shit 
that sounds like such an LA thing, but it, it's a position you can do it. I like I have a lot of my friends who I would love to be their manager for, who mm -hmm. I like will unofficially I'll see auditions and I'll send it to them like you need to go out for this. Um, I think I I would be a good manager or just because I love see I it is a huge pet peeve of mine seeing um, gifts not being utilized in some way. Like I, I did voice lessons for so long and at school I worked so much on singing and stuff and it's just not for, like I don't have that ability. And so then when I see people who are blessed with just like God given singing voices and don't pursue it or just wreck their voices, it drives me crazy. Um, so I, I think it would be fun to be a manager or, or just setting up like, like the accountability coach is something like you have to go to the gym this amount of time, you have to do this, you have to call this person, email this. And I think that'd be fun. What is that? Just texting people or calling them you, or what? I, you, I, I know it exists, but I'm not positive what it On is. But I think you have some kind of communication every week where it's like, show me what you did. Did you do this? We mapped out you were going to do this, and we set goals for ourselves for the rest of the year. Right. And are you doing the things that you've said that you're going to do? Um, and it just sort of helps motivate people and make them driven. I think I would like to do that. It's interesting, right? Because I see that going only so many ways. Like there's one way in which that's super effective. And I hire you, David, as my accountability coach. And you're like, you're going to go to the gym three times a week. And you're going to make sure you write for an hour a week and blah, blah, blah. And then every week I do it. And then you call me and you're like, hey, what's up, bro? Do you do all that shit? And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, all right, cool. Here's your money. And then, right. <laughs> and then, and then like next week you call, you're like, Hey, you do that shit again. I'm like, I totally did. Here's your money again. And then eventually it gets to the point where I'm like, why am I paying David to do this? Yeah. But then I did or, my job or yeah. Or it's the opposite. And it's like, Hey, what's up, dude? You do all that shit. I'd be like, ah, I didn't get to it. Here's your money still. Yeah. And, uh, it's just like a fee I pay every week for not being productive where I have to pay my accountability coach yeah. for not. It has to up be for it. rich people who don't really care what they do with their money. Exactly. Honestly, which very mal, which we're thing. all trying to take. Oh yeah, absolutely. Actually, I'm going to add to this answer. I think I would be a therapist or a psychologist in some way. I, originally, that's what I was going to go to Pepperdine to do. I think I was going to be a sports psychologist working with athletes who like are coming back after injuries or get nervous and, crunch time and stuff i love like honestly I, I could easily just like flip the table and like part of me wants to just be asking you questions like i'm very interested in just getting to the truth of other people so i think i could be a therapist um tell me a favorite moment from past interviews on this that sits with you oh for sure um i mean the scony one is hard to beat i mm -hmm. think about it fairly often honestly from that first question i it almost was because he's such like a mythical creature in some ways yeah so you're like where are you from and he says like eureka california mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, i went there recently Boys. yeah yeah it's amazing everyone uh, should listen to it yeah it's really good um and nothing to do with me uh it's 
I, I think there's a couple of moments from this show where I found something out during the interview and I was like, oh shit, I mm -hmm. have no idea how to deal with this like carefully. Like yeah. I, I, we're recording, like I won't, you know, I want to stop and be like, yo, we don't have to talk about this or whatever, but I've just rolled with it. And one of them was uh, finding out the story about Robert Bessett's mother and how she died, um, which uh, if you haven't heard that story is fucking crazy it's mm. insane and it came up with me being like so tell me about your mom and it was like well here's the story and yeah. it was like whoa and i later went and looked it up um basically she uh worked at the prison in huntsville and um there was a big riot and a bunch of prisoners took a bunch of people hostage and there's a big final i mean it was a week on tv it was like a national incident oh my gosh yeah it's you can go read about this on like wikipedia uh and a number of other places this massive riot that happened in huntsville and the prisoners took the prison over and there was a big thing where they were trying to escape at the end and they took a few people hostage and the police had a plan to like use water hoses to like knock over everybody and then the water hose didn't go off the way it was supposed to and they killed a couple of the prisoner or they killed a couple of the prison employees and one of them was robert's mom and um it was like while he was at juilliard and oh, so, so he was young wow yeah okay. and he wasn't around mm -hmm. like he was in new york at the time when it was all happening and he was trying to come back and yeah uh you know it, it it just it it was a tough moment in the interview because of course it's been a very long time and he's probably spoken about it many times since then but it's not something that comes up very often and in my many years of knowing him you know it's not something right we'd ever and off a pretty g generic blanket question that could sure. he could have gone anywhere with that when he talked about his dad i was like tell me about your dad and he was like well he owned this electronics or not electronic goodness gracious appliance store uh you know and it was local and it was just this fun blah 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 story and i'm like all right and your mom yeah and it was like well that's actually kind of a kind of a strange story and i'm like well go ahead and he tells me and then of course much of what i just told you i later looked up myself he didn't yeah. tell the full story nor have i um but uh yeah, that one that one took me by surprise and and but I, I feel like I handled it all right, but it was just I also feel like that is what like that's what I would love if I were in your position. Not yeah. that it, for it to get really dark, but for people to not just be like my favorite color is blue. Like that's the kind of conversation Fuck you that. want. Yeah. Absolutely not. I I don't want to edit myself at all. Obviously, I like swear a lot and I I don't fucking care uh about it at all. Um but and, and I've said this before without going on and on. One of the reasons why this show started was because I would go to the talkbacks when we would have an alumni in the thrust. Yeah. And back then, Bessida, and then for a little while before I left, Carl would, like, talk to them and be like, so how was Showcase, blah, 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 blah. Sometimes there'd be some fucking gold in those things. Like, I'd be like, whoa, that was a cool insight. I never would have fucking got that, you know? Uh, I think uh, – Mandy Patinkin was there at one point and, and gave one of my favorite speeches, uh, you know, talking about life and art and stuff. It was great. But so many of them just felt like very uncomfortable. Like I uh, did not expect to be in front of the whole drama school talking like this. And, you know, they get kind of reserved or they give you the like, you know, true Hollywood answer or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, what if someone just got him alone talking for like an hour? with no one else around and it could actually be an intimate conversation to find out what it has been like since they left or whatever the fuck. Yeah. Um, 
And so I just basically got selfish. And I was like, I just want to talk to myself. Yeah. Like, I love Robert and Gerald and Carl, but, like, well, get him the fuck out of here. Let me talk Yeah, to and it strips down the performative aspect of it. And do you have to be PC? I think it's a super good idea. And I'm jealous. I would love to just sit up and ask questions like this. I think yeah. It's a fun gig. Well, I tell you what, if you get uh, any questions you want to ask anybody, you let me know and I'll try to weasel okay. them in. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. I think, um, you know, I'm working with the school to try to get some of the, uh, the high profile alumni. Um, we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. What I like are some of the people I've already talked to who were, uh, nobody knew who they were when I talked to them and now they do like Elizabeth Yeah. and, um, Dave Brown and, um, Megan even. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's crazy to see everybody evolve and stuff like that. Uh, I definitely enjoyed the, the Sconey conversation. I mean, no one else has had a good dead body story, so yeah, that's, that's one to find. The Matt Lair one was great too, just cause he's the most delightful human being. He might be my favorite person in the world. It's he been knows so it too. It's so long I've since I listened to that. I can't even remember what we talked about. He just like, it's funny because you can't see him obviously listening to it but you can just you can hear like the smile and the light in his voice because right. he's just he's one of the people i interviewed that i knew the least because that's he was what never i my teacher. was gonna guess right because you're saying like yeah he, i've heard that he's taken over and everyone loves him but you, you didn't even have him right mm -mm. yeah no molly murray was my teacher okay listen to this how much i looked out with matt lair i got him as a teacher mm -hmm. and then i got him as a director he directed me in the musical and then we did a show together because we did like a Shakespeare with the North Carolina Symphony, which you coached me on for my audition, by the Did way. I? Yeah. Um, and so he and I were um, mechanicals together. Imagine Matt Lair being a mechanical in Midsummer oh. Night's Dream. He just. It's not, not a stretch. No. He's amazing. So I, I, he's my teacher. He directed me and then I acted with him too. And I think he's incredible. I love him. That's that's something I look forward to doing again is um, is going back to the faculty because that was kind of the whole angle on season two. Yeah, you got two. Mary Irwin. Yeah, I talked to Mary, uh, Bessida, Sconey, uh, Ashley. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I ever published the one that I did with Quinn. Uh, I did talk I to I've him, but I, I don't think I ever got that one out. And then when I talked to him recently, he was like, let's let's do another one. And I was really? like, okay, yeah, for sure. Um, I may still put it out. Who gives a shit? It's just old. You know, it'll yeah. be in the context of him being like brand new to the faculty because um, that's kind of when I talked to him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been an interesting thing, uh, especially out here. Um, it's nice to have another gentleman on cause I've mostly been talking to ladies. Yeah. It's been almost all, yeah, I'm not complaining, but it's been, uh, just like who's available. Um, you have any final thoughts? Um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been a fan of these interviews for a while, so I'm super happy this worked out. Very last second, that like, yeah, you said on Sunday, oh, you're in town, let's do this. Hey, you said you put it on uh, Instagram know, or whatever. You're Instagram. like, hey, LA people. I was like, hey, that's me. Yo, I love doing this kind of stuff, and I've been a fan of it for a while, and I love you, so I was very happy to have an excuse to chat with you. Well, so. thanks, bud. I love you too, and I, uh, I hope that you'll um, send more people from New York out here. I will, yeah. There, I mean, we've had a few people defect now, like Beth Hawks just moved out here, Dylan yeah, Arnold's out here. Um, um, Jasmine Stiefel and I talked. We're gonna her episode will be out this week. 
you directed her in a one woman show, right? I did. I think I I was not I didn't see it for some reason. I think it was when we were doing the Matt Lair play. We were all in yeah. North Carolina. Mm-hmm. That was um, uh, the Amish project. Yeah. Yeah. Uh one of my favorite things that I've ever done. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. My favorite one that you did was um Oh well this is a fun game. <laughs> <laughs> what is it the oh my gosh. How to learn to drive. Still one of my favorite plays I ever yeah. saw at school. And that cast was Holy shit. Incredible. Amazing. Yeah. Uh yeah. I uh I would say I got lucky, but it was definitely a combination of 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 fortune and choosing the right people. I man, that's a thing. I don't want to work in casting as a job because I don't want to be done with it at that point. Like the idea that I would cast the fucking and show then and then not be able to right. direct them. Are you kidding? Boo. But um, from the moment I got to school, there were so many things that I was like, I don't get this. Like I was like, man, I can't, I can't see a play. Like when I used to direct, Stephen Kopp and I were in the same class and we had the exact opposite problem. I read a play and I can hear it. I can hear how each line is supposed to be said. Like, I don't have to think about it and be like, oh, is this a question? Is it? No, I fucking know. And if the if the actors come in and give me new ideas, great. But for the most part, I know what the fucking play sounds like. Mm-hmm. I could direct the radio play that day. But you don't see it. I visually. can't see it. Yeah. I don't know where they're standing. I don't know what the room looks like. I don't know what they're wearing and kind of don't care. Like, like I'll figure that out and we'll have fun with it. But that's not the thing I get excited about. It's the fucking dialogue that I love. Stephen Cop, opposite problem. Done not totally understanding how everyone's communicating or what they're saying or what they mean. Little jokes that would, you know, go by his head. But he could see the whole fucking thing. Mm-hmm. And he usually saw it in some weird way that I never would have occurred to me. Like when he did his senior thing with the plastic yeah. in Sconey's room yeah. with the sand and all that shit with Gus and uh, Megan. Uh, yeah, was it Megan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, maybe. They'll be upset that I forgot, but um, it was. It was. Absolutely okay. Megan Smith, right? Yeah. Yeah, Megan yeah. Smith and Gus. Uh, an awesome play. Yeah. But never in a million years would I have thought of that shit mm-hmm. with the fucking sand and all the bags and whatever the Oh, me fuck. neither. Yeah. No way. He just thinks like that. And that's why I loved studying with him because we would approach the same text with wildly different ideas. And the other thing that I was able to do almost instantly was I would read a play and I would go, it's this person. Like, this like is the cast. casting me? Yeah, yeah. instantly. Yeah. Like, I'm just like, oh, it's them. Like, it would reveal itself to me, like, magically. And I would almost always get that person. And if I didn't get them, I would get somebody else that ended up maybe being better. But, like, yeah, there's just something about being able to plug the right people into stuff. And I miss that so much about doing plays, mm-hmm. like picking the people and then sitting down and just kind of getting out of the way, which is what every book on directing says to do. It's like yeah. 80% is casting, put the right people in the parts and get the fuck out of the way, fix it where they fuck up. And that's it. That's yeah. directing. And it's like, if you get blessed with the right cast, it's so fucking easy. And how I learned to drive was just like, boop, 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 boop. Yeah. And they're awesome. And, and I'll just amazing. play with music. Yeah. Um, uh, and then I figured out, uh, blocking one day. I was like, oh, wow. I learned how to block plays. Uh, I never really was great at it. I graduated. Always made me nervous. Um, you know, I took scene design and all that different stuff in DMP and 
still was like not sure about how to approach that other than like okay this is the room the play says we have i'll just start them off on other sides of the room and see what happens and try to find action and then we did kgb honeymoon the um noah reese's uh original work and man which was supposed to be a stage reading and then became a full-blown show with like fight choreography and yeah great yeah yeah because uh it was a staged reading and then we decided to literally stage it and I had one day and I blocked that whole play in like three hours and, and, and it, dude, it was crazy. It was like, I was like, I knew the play, I knew the music, but I didn't know what it looked like at all. All I knew was the room we were in. And then the day that we showed up to block that play, it was like two days before we opened it. And I was like, okay, start at the top what's the first thing all right put them on stage and then just it just man i just knew it yeah it was it blew my mind i was like i never thought i would get to this point where i would just be able to go and this goes here and that goes there and boom 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 boom, and plug it all in and then we got to the end and i was like all right and that's the last thing there's holy shit we just did it yeah it's done like and i'd seen people like john langs do that before where he was just like, and this goes here and that goes there. And I'm like, did you just sit at home for like an hour and write all this down and plan it out? And for some of those directors I worked with, they did do that. But some of them did it the way I did it in that room, which is just trust your fucking instincts. And you logically, know- what is the next domino? Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? And you've looked at enough art and you've looked at enough movies and you've looked at enough theater that you're like, I understand tension and putting space between these things and utilizing this space because i know that has to come in from over here in the next moment it just mary said it the best for me the work works Uh you get to a point where if you've really studied enough it just happens yeah that's the fucking magic yeah like and i miss that all the time in doing plays it happens not as much in reality tv for me i mean i'm still directing that's what i do yeah except i direct non-actors but like, yeah, I miss that thrill of taking a a, a text and and just bring and, it to life and I miss casting it. it. I mean, yeah, I think the the process of casting is incredibly fun, right? Um, and that's sort of part of why I got into like producing plays. One, just because it's, I'd much rather do that than audition because it's a shortcut to getting to act, and you get to pick the stories you want, but then you get to pick the people who you act with, and just brainstorming a list of like all the people I've met through either Pepperdine, North Carolina or Houston or New York and just making like here are all the people I know who could play this part do they go well across with this person and me it's the most fun process yeah, I love it that's hard to beat yeah um all right man well we're gonna have to figure out a way for me to cast you in a play I will come out to LA at any point for a show so you let me know I'll do for it sure I uh I think all the time about like man I wish I just had all the money in the world so that I could just stage something out here fly out all my friends and uh you know put them up and pay them i know and that's the other thing too is that one of the things that that happened to me from moving from theater to tv i have no patience for working for free Mm -hmm. like if my bills are paid i'll go do a play but like this whole like work for a 500 hundred dollar a week stipend and then try to get the bills paid some other way it's I so just, hard i can't do it i, I know i can't do it i and can I, do it I for my first year post-graduating and i'm glad i did it i set up yes to a bunch of 
crap projects that led to other good projects. Right. But after one year, I was like, I can't do it anymore. Yeah. And the problem is, is once you start making a regular rate doing whether it's acting or producing or whatever, and, mm-hmm. and that becomes your rate in the industry, everything you get offered is put in the lens of that. I know. So like yeah. the first time I made like $1,200 a week as an associate producer, which is a been dream, a, which yeah. has been a while since I made that little, uh-huh. I still go weeks making nothing. Cause I'm in between th- like, I'm not making any money this week. Uh, but once I made that, the idea of someone's like, all right, do this, probably work like 35 hours a week. It's going to be like 700 bucks. And I'm like, no, yeah, I just, I just can't like, unless I was just fully sitting pretty and, and all bills were paid and I could chill for a while. But yeah, you start to, the industry tells you what you're worth. And then someone else tries to ask you to do it for half that money. And you're like, I just can't. Yeah. Unless I'm in love with the project. I was going to say, unless it's a passion project or someone you've always wanted to work with. Which almost never happens. Right. Like, that's the that's the thing that I miss the most about school. It's like everything that came along was like, we must make this. Like, yeah. you know, everything was like, with yeah. a need. It was like, Every this intensive play arts must piece, like, get up. If we don't put up this piece, society will crumble as we know it. Absolutely. And it was like a tap dance. but <laughs> Which is what's we amazing. We swore to me. by it. Is, that's another thing, too, that one of the reasons why I, I like working in TV is because I was starting to get bummed to the fact that when I when I produced and directed and I hustled and I did everything I could, maybe 70 people would see my play. Mm-hmm. Oh, the distribution when oh, it's on camera, boo. it's astounding compared to theater. Bro, my fall TV show that I work on, eight and a half, ten million views a week. Like, yeah, what versus the fuck? 70 people seeing theater. What the fuck? Which, again, so when I'm producing... It turns out I care about that, and I didn't think I would. Yeah. Well, it's it's it can be disheartening if you put everything you have into something. And, I mean, that's the hard pitch with producing something for theater, which I'm doing right now. But the first time I produced a show in New York was I, I bought a ticket well in advance to fly home to Houston and meet with a bunch of people and try to raise money. And it turned out that it was it ended up being three weeks before Hurricane Harvey. Oh, so I was the jerk who flew to Houston and was like, hey, I know that, you know, your whole family's homeless and your daughter's missing. And I mean, not that extreme, but like, like, hey, I know that like you're at rock bottom, but I want to do theater in New York. And <laughs> you you'll never see the show because you're in Houston and you'll never make a penny. It's not an investment, but please give me your money. And it was the hardest pitch to ever. Oh, and so man. I'm about to start it again. I'm flying home to Houston to fundraise again. And. I've learned a lot from it, and knock on wood, we don't have another hurricane hit right before I fundraise, because, like, I had to ask, or it, it wouldn't happen, but I've never felt worse about myself in my life, so. I went to uh, Puerto Rico to shoot, uh, like, a sizzle reel for a travel show mm-hmm. that we developed, and basically it was going to be, like, millennial travel, like, go see the world on a dime kind of thing, and we went to Puerto Rico, and we shot all this footage for, like, two weeks, Um you know, rented all these cameras. It was spending a lot of money and uh, had a blast and shot this great travel sizzle reel for going to Puerto Rico a month before the hurricane hit. No. And so then now in the fall, we're trying to pitch this like thing. Come on. Yeah, oh it's going to be fun. No. Uh, and it was like, yeah, that island doesn't exist <laughs> anymore in the state that you're selling it as. I mean, the idea was that, you know, we could do the show anywhere. But, yeah, all our footage was, like, of this place that you can't fucking go because uh, there's no electricity. Um, but, yeah, it's crazy, man. It's crazy how that shit works out. You're like, oh, this will be the thing. Yeah. This will this will be perfect. Like, it seems weird to go to Houston 
to get money for theater in New York. Not as weird as asking right after a hurricane. Not as weird as that. Yeah, that was bad. But again, that that job I had on the phone call for lawyers has right. helped me with this of just here's what I need, here's what I can give you in return. So, um, and actually, speaking of Noah Reese, he wrote, he has arranged the music for it, so I'm working with him, and Love he's him. a musical genius. Yeah, he's, he's incredible. incredible. It's uh, yeah, his. New work is hard. New work yeah. is really fucking hard, especially musicals and trying to have it make sense. Um, and other than the fact that what he developed was like an iteration of set, it was basically the Americans, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, even though he didn't know that, like he was not a, oh, he funny. didn't, you know, he didn't watch it. He didn't know about that. He fully was just like, this is an idea I had, and it's like, oh, that is already a thing. It's just not a staged musical. Um, and if someone were to pitch like the Americans as a musical, you'd be like, no, right. Uh, but that fucking piece that he wrote when he was like 22 or whatever with like 10 or 12 parts in it, I know it was great. It was really well, good. And then all the like cabaret ones he would do it for intensive arts. I'm like, I remember the first one I saw and I was like, wow, I love this music. What musical is this from? And then I found out it was all original music, right? He's legit. He's yeah. great. Now he's got a bright future. Yeah, got to get him I on know here. Uh, yeah, we'll see if he listens. Uh, <laughs> then we'll get him on. Um, but thanks for talking to me, man. I, I could we go did, like five more hours. I know. I we did this. like final thoughts like 20 minutes ago. I know. Uh, but that's totally fine. We'll have you back on next time you're in town. Okay, I'll come out and we'll do a play together in three years. I'll tell you if I still like New York and we'll do another interview. I love that, that I don't have to recap anything. It's like you, Oh, I got you. you. Yeah. I got you. <laughs> David Gao is a 2016 graduate of the School of Drama. At the Elephants is produced, hosted, and edited by Rob Morris in Silver Lake, California. 